Anyway, hi, hi, welcome to the Soybean Aphid Podcast. This is Matt O'Neill. It's the 2nd of August, 2013, and I'm here with Aaron Hodgson, and we are both tired. Why? I don't know why. I'm just tired today. A lot of. I was on a road trip to a meeting, to a corn cap uh, meeting for three days in Purdue. Maybe we could talk about that. After we get done talking about soybean aphids, let's talk about soybean aphids. You have a comment here. Soybean aphids slowly up and then treat? Treat? Question mark? Um, yeah. Well, um, according to our grad students who visit all these research farms every week, I think numbers are steadily increasing. And we also Throw heard... And so we also heard from Brian Lang. He's a ISU field agronomist in northeastern Iowa. And those numbers are also just slowly increasing. I think everything would be below a treatable level, but with our cool week, cool temperatures, I think um, it just shows that they like that. And numbers just increase a little bit. Can we talk? Can we talk? Can we talk a little bit about the. I'm looking at the Brian Lang numbers, and I think this is consistent with what our students are seeing, and that they see. 93 to 83% of the plants have aphids, but the numbers per plant are very low, like less than 10 per plant. And I, I got a lot of questions at this meeting uh, by agronomists from around the Midwest. Hey, what's going on with soybean aphids? And I said, well, this is going to be the week because if those con- conditions remain you know, conducive for the aphids to reproduce and their populations to grow, then those 10 could become 20, could grow to hundreds. But then it becomes an interesting equation because those populations are growing, but so is the plant. And our thresholds for the 250 per plant threshold is for plants up to R5. So if this was a normal year, I would say, wow, you know, we probably won't get to a point where we need to spray. But so much was planted late, and so much of the beans around at least central Iowa and other parts of Iowa are not as far along as they probably should be. Um, Yeah, there may be a need for insecticide application. And what's a little disconcerting to me is when I was driving from Illinois or from uh, Iowa through Illinois to Purdue, I saw a lot of insecticide being put, or a lot of pesticide being put on. And I'm guessing some of that's tank mixed. So with, you know, fungicide and insecticide, it's not clear to me that that stuff is going to provide enough protection for the, the all of August. What do you think about that? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And the only place I'm really hearing about in the north central region um, that's of any significance about soybean aphid is sort of the central and southeastern Minnesota areas. And so there's definitely enough aphids in those areas to justify treatments, but it also kind of raises a red flag to me that they could be doing some long distance migration um, in August. And so just something to keep in mind that they could be migrating south to Iowa. So keep keep scouting. Keep scouting. They must get tired of hearing that. (laughs) I know I'm tired. (laughs) It's been a long week. So um, I just got back. F- oh, before I talk about getting back from the um, the meeting in Purdue, you have another uh, agenda item for our meeting. Japanese beetles tapering off. So populations of those are starting to drop off. You have a you have some confirmation of this. Is this is this hopeful thinking or is this actually happening? Um, that would just be from discussions with Cody Kuntz, our our grad student, actually your grad student, and he said, I think according to like numbers, um, numbers are holding steady and kind of declining, at least in central Iowa. So that's what I base that off of. 
Excuse me. Okay. It's a good thing. It's all right. I told you I'm tired. This oh, this heat is killing me. Um, it's not so much heat, the humidity. The uh, the numbers are yeah. It does seem like they're kind of they're not growing uh, as fast as they were, uh, but they may be around for several weeks. I noticed in some bean fields that I was in um, in uh, Indiana. You know, it was easy to find Japanese beetles. Like I think it is here. It's easy to find them. Uh, and you can notice the damage. But the damage is so slight you know, that it's not really anything that's going to produce a yield loss. Um, yeah, so that's our insect stuff for this week. Uh, starting to get a lot of reports, right, about corn knocked over because of poorly damaged or poorly formed uh, roots damaged by western corn rootworm. And this is not just fields where, you know, there is uh, no insecticide use or no BT. This is in fields that are growing BT crops that should be resistant to the rootworm, but we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of damage. Are you hearing this as well? Yeah, um, you're right. There was some fields that were planted into very wet soils or some, some seeds that were planted into very wet soils, and so you have problems with poor root development. And then on top of that, some pretty significant A-catch numbers, and uh, they had very good weather for feeding. The larvae like it dry. So after it was wet during planting, then it got dry. The larvae did very well. And then any type of wind or rain event uh, blows the corn over, and the larval injury is very obvious at that point. You see, I think some people kind of call it like a roasted or toasted kind of roots where they actually are first turn brown and then they can even turn black. And so black. black. Wow. Yeah, that's not a good sign if your roots are black from, from insect feeding. So um, when you see adult corn rootworm, that is the time to assess for larval injury. Don't wait too long because some hybrids can have a lot of regrowth and, and cover up or mask some of the larval feeding. So now is the time. And this would be good this would be good to know because if you're using a BT corn that you think is providing protection of the rootworm, um, you'd want to know if that's actually the case. And really the only way to know is by digging up the roots and looking for that damage. Because it is possible that even corn that yields well um, could be damaged, but the growing conditions were such that you got uh, good regrowth and you were able to maintain yield. However, those populations build up and build up, and at some point you might get burned. Um, so I'll put a link on our on our little box here for where they can find more information about BT-resistant rootworms, your, your one article that you wrote. We're running out of time here, but I wanted to wrap up with uh, – because um, we're on the topic of corn, the meeting I went to at Purdue. So this is a project that was funded through the USDA. It's a it's called a CAP project. It's a, uh, with a focus on um, addressing the challenges of climate change for corn production. And with that is uh, soybean production. And I'll put in the, the text for the, the today's episode a, a link to the website. One of the things that they're exploring is the uh, crop rotation extended rotations beyond just a corn and soybean and kind of the take-home message i heard from the meeting was you know crop rotation is great for corn in that you get a yield bump of anywhere from 10 to 17 percent from including a soybean uh, in it in the in the rotation and um, there's more information on how um, 
at the website, this uh, extended rotations can uh, improve soil quality to some extent. And other ways beyond extended rotations, the use of cover crops. So uh, a little bit broader topic for today, but I thought I'd bring that up because it was an interesting meeting. I think at the corn uh, cap website, there's a lot of useful information for people. So I'll put that in the link. Anything else? That, those are the highlights. That's the music. That means our time is up. Have a good week.